The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. From baseball's top personalities. The great Chris Russo joins us once again. To the game's top players. Joining us is the All-Star. Matt Chapman with us. You never know what stories you're going to hear. If you make your way down here, I, I might be able to make some time and go out there and see the great Chris Townsend. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Welcome to A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Today, you're going to hear from former World Series champion from the 1972 team, Mike Epstein. We're going to hear from Dallas Braden, Keith Folk, and Adam Rosales. So four ex-A's all joining us here today on A's Unfiltered. But Mike Epstein, not only what he did in 1972 helping the A's win the World Series, but his career as a hitting guru, and we're going to talk a lot about Ted Williams. How cool is that? Here's former A's first baseman, Mike Epstein. Well, he's a World Series champion, a gold medal winner at the University of California, graduated from Cal, and of course was on the 1972 team, A's against the Reds, the Hares versus the Squares. Mike Epstein is with us here on A's Cast Live. Mike, how have you been? Chris, I've been well. I'm retired now and living a good life on an acreage with horses here in Colorado. Oh, that, that, that is great. You know what? You did it right. Well, I hope so. I'm still around to, to, uh, to tell you. You know, when you look back at 1972, obviously the run starts in 71. You guys make the playoffs. But then you win the World Series in 1972 against the Big Red Machine, uh, it was a great World Series. We've been we've been airing these games. It's been a lot of fun. What do you remember back from 1972? Well, you know, uh, it's hard to forget anything about 1972, especially when you won the World Championship. But um, it, it was it was it was a fantastic year. A bunch of great teammates. Uh, we all got along really well, and. Um, you know, when you have that kind of chemistry, the talent seems to flow, and uh, everybody was picking everybody else up, you know, in the late innings, and it was great. Dick Williams did a great job. Uh, really, yeah, he's a great manager, and he uh, he was the right guy for the kind of ball players, the teammates I had at that particular time. And uh, what we've learned is you guys were kind of a crazy bunch. Well, you know, that's, that's what they say. Uh, but, uh, I don't know how crazy we were. We, I, I think they blew a little bit out of proportion, but, uh, there, we had, we had some great times. <laughs> Talk about the, the kind of team we had, uh, uh, in, uh, 1972. I remember we played in Anaheim and, uh, we had a game that went, uh, I don't know, 15 innings. And the next day we had a doubleheader in New York, a day doubleheader. And so we didn't get on the plane till about two o'clock in the morning at, at uh, LAX. We nobody slept. We played cards and told jokes all night, and uh, got into New York about nine or ten o'clock, and out went straight to the ballpark, put on our uniforms, went out, played the Yankees in a, in a doubleheader, and uh, uh, we beat them uh, in the both games in a doubleheader by shutouts. And after the game, the New York writers couldn't believe it. They said, gee, talking to Dick Williams, they said, uh, tell me, Dick, he, he said, uh, were you surprised that these guys came out and played so well with no sleep? Dick looked at him deadpan and said, are you kidding? They don't ever get any sleep. This is just a normal routine for him. <laughs> <laughs> also special in your career, because I've been to Tokyo twice with the A's, what was it like winning the gold medal in Tokyo in 1964 as, as you're coming out of Cal? Well, I, I'll tell you, it, it, one of the greatest moments that, uh, in my life was when we opened up against uh, Japan in their baseball stadium. And it was, you know, it had like 70,000 people in that stadium. It was packed. And, uh, but we're sitting there in the dugout, and all of a sudden they start playing the national anthem. So we stood up and, uh, you know, put our 
right hand over our left heart salute. And uh, I'll tell you what, I never in my life have ever felt so proud to be an American. They're on foreign soil, them playing the national anthem in front of 70,000 foreigners. And I just stood there and I just, uh, the hair on the back of my, my neck just, just stood up. I almost had tears in my eyes. That was, that's the one thing about uh, being in the Olympics uh, and of course winning, but that was great. But that one moment, uh, I was so proud to be an American that um, still, uh, it's something I've never forgotten. Yeah, that's a great story because you hear it from so many Olympic athletes that they say that w- when you represent your country in a foreign country, what it means to you. And uh, that's a great story. I want to tell you, there's a new book out. Jared Diamond has a book out uh, called Swing Kings, and you're mentioned in this book. I don't know if you know that. It's kind of a, a really popular baseball book right now. Uh, uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I, I, I haven't seen that one. I, I've seen a few of them. Uh, they're great, and they, they bring back a lot of great memories for me. Well, and they talk about your relationship. Well, you played for Ted Williams, and you had a great relationship with arguably the greatest hitter of all time. What was it like being around Ted Williams? Well, you know, you're, at first I was in, in awe. Of, in fact, we became very, very good friends after I retired. He had retired in Florida. But uh, it wasn't always that way. Uh, we, we battled here and there about different things. And I'd question this that he'd say and he'd question, you know, he'd give me an answer. And he'd say, what are you questioning me for? I'm the world's greatest hitter. And uh, but we used to we'd go back and forth and back and forth, and back and forth. But uh, it, it wasn't I mean, it, Ted was Ted. Uh, you, if you caught him on a good day, he was probably the nicest uh, person you'd ever want to meet. Uh, very gregarious and funny. And But if you got him on a, a, on the wrong day or you said one thing that he didn't like and he just, he just go off on a tangent, but um, he was great. Uh, and uh, that's where after I retired, I wanted to really pick his brain about hitting technique and stuff like that. And, we got to talking uh, one day uh, at his home down in Florida because I was down in Florida on business. And uh, he, I was going to stay one day, and I wound up staying three days at his home. And we just kept talking to him again. He said, you you got to stay on this, Mike. He says, you got one of those kind of brains that just – and you can teach this stuff. He said, and so we developed that the friendship that way. And um, I probably met with him uh, four times a year for almost 10 years down in Florida when I go down there. And, um, uh, and, and I, I'll tell you the, the most interesting thing about everything uh, when it comes to hitting was all the stuff that he taught me. And then I took a lot of his things uh, further because uh, by the time that I was uh, he was mentoring me, uh, you know, stop frame video action, slow video, slow motion video was out. And you could see things in the swing that the human eye wasn't fast enough to see. And um, so I took all this stuff, all, all of his knowledge uh, and built on it. And then I went out and tried to uh, tell people that this is a, a way better hit way to hit than uh, swinging down and swinging down for backspin and hitting ground balls and stuff. That wasn't uh, biomechanically correct. It, it just goes against everything that the body really wants to do to achieve things. And uh, everything that players are doing today is what I brought to the game. Uh trying to teach people uh, how, to, how to hit this way. And I tell you what, you talk about a salmon swimming upstream. There, I, nobody wanted to listen to me. In fact, I uh, worked for the Milwaukee Brewers for a while, and they fired me because they didn't like what I was teaching. But today, everybody's doing what I was teaching. But it was the wrong time. Timing was wrong. 
Well, I know exactly what you're talking about. Trying to change anything in this game, it's like, oh, it's like pulling teeth. Everybody's so conservative. No one wants to change. No one wants to change the game. You know, we're watching. I don't know. Have you gotten a chance to watch the Korean Baseball League on ESPN? Yeah, I have. They're playing games that are two hours. Our games are now three hours and 45 minutes. All those World Series games you played in were under three hours. It's like it's like we need, there's things that need to change in baseball. And, yes, the evolution of the swing, you are a part of that. And to think Ted Williams helped change the game, and he's still – you and Ted are changing the game. Well, you know, uh, I, I, I had opportunities to be uh, – hitting coaches at the major league level, eight, eight with eight different teams. And I never got any of those positions uh, after they said, you got it. You're going to be our hitting coach. And I said, why? I said, because you got fired from Milwaukee and they have a do not hire, uh, you know, uh, thing against you. And so major league baseball, they just blackballed me for teaching what everybody's what I want that teaching that everybody's doing today. So that, that, that's how the game works. It's sort of like a clickish kind of thing and, you know, a country club. And uh, I, but I have, uh, it, it, it was great. I, I have no problems uh, with how everything turned out. Uh, my son now is running the baseball school that we have, and uh, he's doing absolutely great teaching the same things that I was teaching. And of course the way it's supposed to be is, Ted taught me, I built on the things that Ted said, made it better because of the, uh, the technology that was available. And now my son has taken my stuff and taken it to a new level. So that's the way it's supposed to be. So he's on the, the, the leading edge, the cutting edge of everything going on and hitting today. And um, I'm really proud of him. You know, that, that, that is really a new thing in baseball to where pitchers and hitters are going to outside coaches that are not at the major league level that have a lot of these different uh, baseball schools, boy, has the world changed. Because years ago, you never would have saw that. Well, you know, you wouldn't. Um, uh, And it's just, it's really weird how how things happen. Uh, Most hitting coaches get hired because they have a personal relationship, you know, with the manager and, you know, drinking buddies go out and have a good time and stuff like that. And I understand that, but it doesn't do anything for the players because a lot of the people who become hitting coaches, you know, really shouldn't be hitting coaches. In fact, to show you how overrated hitting coaches were in, in, uh, uh, in major league baseball, there weren't any major league hitting coaches until 1972, I think. That were, you know, solely coaches to teach hitting. Because, like Ted Williams used to tell me, he says, "How does everybody learn?" He he says, "The way they learn is they mimic the the great hitters. They copy what they do. They see them. They and he says the technique becomes very singular. Uh, there's nothing. Everybody uses the same te- technique, but what?" different is the style everybody has a, every hitter has a different style hands high hands low open stance close stance wiggle this do that you know and but once they get into that launch position the technique is the same for everybody and uh uh that's how ted said that that's how you learned i remember when i was a uh after I was a minor league player of the year coming up at Baltimore, we're down in spring training. And Gene Woodley, who was an old Yankee outfielder, uh, was was a coach uh, with the Orioles. And uh, I I wasn't doing really well in spring training. And he says to me, is you in a slump? And I said, yeah, it must be. I said, trying to buy a hit here. He, he said, I said, what did you do, Gene? You know, and you went in a when when you you and the Yankees you play, you know, teammates went into a slump and he said, oh, we go out and have four or five Manhattans. Come in, <laughs> come in, come back in the clubhouse the next morning, sit in the hot tub uh, for about 20 minutes at 104 degrees and the trainer would come in and put a 
heavy wool blanket on top of you, and you just sweat it all out the next next day. He says that's how we that's how we broke out of swamps in those days. So you know, what can I tell you? So uh, the hitting coaches have been overrated over the years. There have been some good ones, I'm sure, and there have been some that shouldn't have been, you know, hitting coaches in the first place. But it's like politics. You know, you hire your friends, the people that you get along with, irrespective sometimes of the experience they may have for that particular uh, job function. Mike, this was a real treat. I I know our A's fans are going to absolutely love it, and we'd love to have you back on and talk hitting again. Thank you so much for the time. Be safe on the ranch, and uh, hopefully we'll get baseball back soon and we can have you on the program. Thank you, Chris. Enjoyed it. That was really a fascinating conversation. I mean, you're bringing up Ted Williams? Come on. And always good. And, you know, we've been celebrating so many of the great moments in A's history, and one of the greatest moments in Oakland A's history is Dallas Braden throwing that perfect game. Here is the former left-hander and, of course, broadcaster for NBC Sports California. Dallas, how are you, my friend? I am well, Uncle Tony. How you doing, big dog? Hey, I got to say, I... Right now, I've got eyes on you. I've got a visual on you, and that, that. that lettuce right now, folks, I know you can't see what's going on right now, but we've all been to the gag stores in the mall or at the strip mall, right? We've all been to Spencer's, hashtag no free ads, and we've all seen that visor with the wild and crazy like white hair attached to the top of it, right? That's exactly what you look like right now, sans the white lettuce. Sans white hair, you're that, you are that merch right now. <laughs> okay, so my wife is like, you got to cut it. And I went, you know what? I've never had long hair in my life. I'm going to let it eat, baby. Let it eat. You're wearing it well. Oh, yeah. Let it grow. Let it grow. <laughs> let it grow. Oh, God. Don't get me started, Tony. <laughs> my word. Now that you got kids, how many times have you seen Frozen and Frozen 2? Are you kidding me? I'm I'm out. Um, I mean, I'm trying to create aliases to to try to bring in more like like stimulus checks so I can afford the the rent fee for trolls too. You can't buy the damn thing yet. So I've I, I have put it like this: at the end of this thing, when it goes public, if my name isn't somewhere on like executive producer in this thing, like there, there's a problem because I have spent entirely too much money on trolls too. At this point, but yeah, doing well, Tony. Doing so. Well. I, if you, you as a former player, read the room as good as anybody, and so the player, so the the, the thirty owners have agreed on a proposal. They're going to give it to the players' union tomorrow. And Tony Clark, Scott Boris is already out there telling them to reject it. Yeah, there's thirty three million people in the United States of America who don't have jobs. Yeah, I just. If you start haggling hardcore and threatening not to have a seat, I mean, it's just tone deaf. It will not fit well, and these these people who are unemployed will never forget this. Not at all. But I think before we can even go there, you have to understand that to even entertain the notion of getting back to a point where sports are being played, even in the most naked sense, no fans, no right. You have to almost, you have to be okay with moving past or even rationalizing what you would otherwise be facing if you were in a conversation with somebody six feet away about what is going on in the world. Like, like you, you have to just move past the idea that this isn't a good idea. That's, and that's, that, for me, that's, that's one of the craziest things about what we're doing here is we're just trying to get, look, if you know anything about what's going on in Korean baseball right now, they're already rumblings. There's already some dust kicking up about, oh, you know what? The league the league is starting to get put on notice because I don't want to say it's revamping. It's it's not revamping itself over there. Uh, but the, the disease or the, the virus, excuse me, is starting to, again, creep and starting to prevail in places where it otherwise was was considered you know under control to the point where we could go about life where you're playing baseball that that kind of stuff like we're just we, we have to remember that those are the things that are going on you've got players who are and and the oakland a's have players who are you know susceptible at a higher rate even though they're professional athletes there's guys that have health conditions that make them 
very susceptible to some of these uh, to, to some of the ailments that come along with COVID and, and the fact that it's not just the disease at times or the virus, excuse me, but but what you might have going on. It's it's oh, Townie, you're just you're asking a lot. Look, there's a there's a group of people who don't have families who would tell you just like I would if I didn't have a family. Show me what steps I need to sleep on to make baseball happen. And I'm there uh, as somebody who has a family now that mindset is forced to shift. So whatever the owners are going to be coming for, look, and there's already conversations about, you know, Hey, that whole deal we signed about the money and all that. Um, can we revisit that? Can we talk about that? <laughs> and as you've already seen players come up and say, you know, we didn't get to revisit my MVP campaign when I wasn't making MVP campaign type money. So I don't know that you're going to have a ton of guys willing to revisit something that's already been agreed upon. There's, I mean, Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. It's just, yeah, it's, it, you know, it, it's, it's scary times and we want to get back to normal as fast as we can, but we have to be smart and we have to be careful. And, and we really need the KBO, the Korean baseball organization to work. Now, if you've been watching it, and I know you're a traditionalist, if you've been watching it to where they encourage the entertainment, they encourage pit, pit, pitchers to fist pump and yell at the dugouts and bat flips. Could Dallas Braden play in the KBO? Oh, my God. Are, Tony, are you kidding me? I would have become, I, given the ability to sort of create a character, right? You, every five days, you would have been seeing somebody that the WWE would have been running out there. Uh, <laughs> like, are you, absolutely. Like, I would have showed up to the Coliseum like Dallas Braden, whoever that guy is. That's not who you'd be getting every five days. You would be getting somebody completely different. And then I'd be the guy, you know, like, oh, man. Like, I, I might even go third person. Every four days in between the fifth day, I might even go third person and start referring to that guy, you know, like instead of like me. It would be a whole persona. Absolutely. Come on. They've got their own glove with their own silhouette on the webbing of their own glove. And I thought that was cool when, you know, Darvish was featuring that, you know. Guys like it's like, oh no, you go over there and like you've heard guys talk about it. Like you could be in the lower league, like lower leagues over, doesn't matter. You are pimped out to the fullest, like what I call style monkeys. Just you've got absolutely every like shin guards front and back. Let's protect the calf while we're at it. You know, if you've got an inner thigh guard too, I'll strap one of those on. Just absolutely every bell and whistle you could possibly imagine. I'm here for it. These bat flips are so epic, and we're going to have some people on tomorrow who are over there. My big question is, has anybody gotten hurt from one of these bat flips, like the guy in the on-deck circle or maybe in the dugout? Because these guys are winging the lumber. I mean, victims of stray wood, Townie. That's a title. That's a headline right there. It's a it's a miracle that these things – like, I did this thing when, when we were out here in Southern California at the Easton um, – like a, like an Easton baseball event. And we had a bat flip contest and I'm all like, let's just, let's get some chalk out. Let's line these things distance and trajectory. Let's start making a thing of it. Like, I mean, that's how we're looking at it right now. Cause we want any and all facets of entertainment. But I, I feel like at some point in time, there's going to be a, there's going to be a stray barrel. Someone's going to catch a hot one. So, you know, thinking about the way they play, is it possible Major League Baseball players could say, hey, guys, we got we got to entertain the fans. If we bat flip, we're not throwing at anybody. If you strike somebody out and you're pointing at them or you're pointing at the, your own dugout or whatever, no one's charging the mound. Can we get to a point where we can all just say, hey, listen, this is the entertainment business and nobody's throwing at anybody anymore and let guys have a good time? I, I, I will say that I think we are slowly but surely just true to baseball form getting there. And I don't mean that you and I are ever going to see the total overhaul and a KBO style approach to the MLB just because there are, you know, for every five or six guys who come up and are a flash in the pan and have great style but then kind of fizzle out, there's going to be the 15. 16 18 year vets who who keep the game in their sense and in their bubble the way it was when they came up right and that's not a bad thing i'm not saying it's a bad thing at all i'm just saying there's going to be a slower slog of evolution like we've seen in baseball past 
before we get to a point where everybody is in. I mean, come on. People hate coming to the Coliseum because they hate the drums. They hate the cheers. They hate the kazoos and all that jet. Like they just, they, they don't like it. They can't stand it because it's something that they're not used to. It's just a vibe and a culture that they're not accustomed to. So until you start to get entire fan bases on board with that kind of stuff, will you see an entire league or an entire game shift its, you know, I guess level of acceptance for that exuberant celebration? We had we had Rosales, your your, your old buddy Rosie, Rosie on Friday. And of course he was playing second base for the perfect game. So we wanted to talk to him because it's the 10 year anniversary this last oh, Saturday of oh. your perfect game. And when Cody told me that, I'm like, it's been 10 years. Yeah. Crazy, man. Insane. Yeah. Think Insane. of all the things that have happened to all of us in our lives the last 10 years since the last time you threw the perfect game. I'm responsible for two small human beings. I am a beekeeper. Those are just a couple things that have happened in the last 10 years. I mean, it's it's incredible. I live in Southern California, a place that I had swore off my entire existence. Never, ever been here for five plus years. Like you have, yeah, you have no idea. The fact that I'm even still alive, Tony, that's a victory. Didn't, <laughs> didn't know I saw that 10 years ago. You know, one day at a time, my friend. Well, you're, you're a little hung over that day too. <laughs> you know, you put yourself behind the eight ball on purpose. You don't expect that, uh, that expiration date to look too attractive. But for me, it's, uh, man, I, I've, I, I've talked about this with you before, just in, in, in different parts, but, and, and you have an understanding that day, not a great day for me, as far as celebration goes, it wasn't something I was looking forward to never. And I don't know, you know, and that's kind of what has taken, I guess, so long to really come forward with any sort of detail about what that, and I'll say like what that 48 hours was like, because what happened the night leading up to that night, what happened the morning of, of me getting to the game and then what happened after, like, that's all, <laughs> that's all stuff, honestly, that like just the people that have experienced it know. And it's because when you hear the words or you hear the phrase, like you couldn't script that or Hollywood couldn't come up with that. Like I, you, you don't even, I, you don't even, you don't even talk about it because it would just seem fake. Right. So, uh, but, but for me, it, it's, I, I was, I wasn't necessarily proud of it because I did. I had three guys that were younger ball players at the time, ball players at, at UOP, college ball players, and we're getting after it together. And and you know, in my house, it's not like we were out at the bar raging. There, none of that was going on. We were actually watching UFC fights and just like I said, getting after it. And um, like, what kind of example was I setting for these kids who were probably looking at me? You know. Like, like, damn, this is where I want to be. And like, they're great. They're loving it. They're soaking up every moment that they're having, you know, get faced with a big league ball player. But uh, after that, it's like, I'm, I'm trying to show them that, look, man, you know, this is how you're responsible for things. This is how you, and it just, that, that was the last thing I was doing at that point in time. So to brag about that or to even talk about that, like a, or, or put it, place it like a feather in my cap. That wasn't something I was ever like interested in doing, but it's, you know, as time goes on, I'm able. Like, I wish I could. I wish I could divulge the text messages that I got from each and every one of those dudes the night before on on Saturday night. It was it was great. It was it was awesome because it's just kind of reliving that moment. You know, as you said, ten years down the road now. So there's a different level of appreciation because each one of us is at a different place in our lives, but we're able to kind of go back to that moment in time go back to that night, uh, kind of try to piece together what was happening. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's fun. And let's think about this. Some guys throw perfect games. They'll show it back then. Like ESPN will show the highlights and everybody goes, Oh, that's really cool. But all of a sudden you're on like good morning America and you're doing the talk show circuit. So to think where you were with those guys to throw the perfect game. And now you're going on national tie uh, national TV with your grandma. I mean, it was wild. Well, that's, I mean, it, there was about a, yeah. And within 72 hours, I went from tying one on in my living room till about three in the morning with some college kids to sitting down at the ballpark at Arlington talking to David Letterman, you know, like, and, and uh, I think I'm fortunate to, to, to be just dumb enough to not realize everything that was happening at that time, because people, you know, I, I guess you could kind of be caught by surprise. You could be, and 
I was just, I was so very fortunate and still I'm so very fortunate to be like, I, I tell you every time, man, the only reason my phone rings, the only reason I get to talk to you, Townie, is because I had one decent day of work, man. And I don't ever, ever forget that. Ah, oh, you're better than that. Come on. <laughs> they, one, one day counts. you know i keep hearing people talk about you know players got to get ready the one thing that we're seeing on twitter and following these guys everybody's still hitting everybody's still throwing uh so i don't think they're it's not like everybody's sitting around getting fat everybody's still running staying in shape staying ready to go what would you be doing at this point to get ready for a season well that would be exactly what i would be doing for me I don't know that I would know how to like, there would be a certain curtailment. If you, if that's a word, if not, you're welcome. I just gave it to you. Uh, There would be a certain curtailment of my, of my workload. I'm going to be trimming the fat here and there to make sure that when we are then given the green light, I know that that is going to be a green light to a time of preparation as well. So whether or not I'm ready to go nine right now, I don't know that that would benefit me, but could I give you five? Could I give you four or five right now? I think that's probably a good place to try to stay understanding that when you get into that space where they're going to say, all right, here's five weeks or so to go get them to get back up to where you were. I think at that point in time, you're giving yourself a good shot to have stayed healthy through all of this and to compete during the abbreviated season you're going to be going through. And ultimately, that's what I think is going to be on everybody's mind from beginning to end is, can we just get through this healthy? That's going to be the, and and obviously I mean healthy as far as, you know, virus protocol, but I also mean healthy because of understanding what you're asking these dudes to do. This is not like, I get it. You buy a Ferrari, you want to be able to walk into your garage turn it on and go a thousand miles an hour before you even get to the end of the block without having to warm it up. I get it. But as athletes, as finely tuned as these individuals are, that's not a, a realistic expectation. You have to give them the opportunity to grease their wheels, to oil and lubricate these machines so that they can get up. Because once you get these machines up, they don't get put back in the garage, right? They run at a certain RPM for 162 at minimum. That's what needs to be understood. So asking them to get to that point in such an abbreviated time, that's going to be tough. That is going to be tough. Let's end on this. We had a guest earlier today talked about, you know, if you looked at the midseason of 2019, the Nationals wouldn't have been in the playoff. And the Padres would have been. So it just goes to show when we do get this thing started, it's going to be the ultimate sprint to the finish line. And so many teams that get exposed in a 162-game schedule, that's not how it's going to be here. Well, it's it's going to be different. It's going to be crazy because I think there's two ways to look at this, right? Do you extend your starters knowing that they're not going to be man in the post 30-plus times each guy? Or do you run it like, I don't know how much MLB the show you guys have been playing, but do you run it like where it's a, uh, you know, where, where, where it's like a, 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 what you call it? A uh, road of the show, not a road of the show game, but like a challenge game. Um, three innings. Do you just start running? Like if it's a nine inning game and you know there's going to be an abbreviated schedule, is it like, look, hey, pedal to the metal for four. And then let's turn it over to these guys because we're going to hey, sleep in the offseason. Sleep once this 82-game abbreviated whatever this is, is over. Once this is like, but I th- are we in position to just go pedal to the metal? Th- that's, a, that's an assessment that's going to have to occur. What's going to impact that? The window of preparation you're given before the season starts. How guys look coming out of that and into the season. And then what guys look like, say, a month and a half into an 80 game season because that's right about the halfway point somewhere around there right month and a half of 82 games 41 days let's see where we're at there what kind of health are we dealing with what do the arms look like i know for the audience it's good to hear your voice for me it's good to see you on my computer <laughs> as uh, just to see uh, other adults is a nice thing these it days is. 
<laughs> it is. It's great. You can, I can. I see a face, a familiar face. I see two familiar faces. One I just want to squeeze and kiss right now. The other's you, Townie. And <laughs> the commander. <laughs> so I, I, I appreciate. I appreciate the hell out of you boys, and I appreciate all the fans tuning in, listening. And I know you guys are craving any form of baseball whatsoever. And if you just take stock of the team you are a fan of you've got a pretty good reason to be tuning in each and every day because if it's not something regarding the ballpark that may pop up, if it's not something regarding a roster decision because there are key free agents that are going to be impacted by this abbreviated season, we're only going to get a glimpse at our boy in the six hole, Marcus Simeon. There's a lot of questions that I'm sure you have, a lot of answers that I'm sure you want. And if you're going to get those folks, it's going to be here with Uncle Townie and the commander. So hang tight. These guys have done a, an outstanding job. Um, Uncle Townie, I appreciate you, my friend. Cody, you too as well, man. Thank you guys for having me. It's good to just talk to the fans. Be safe and be well. And, Cody, what do you want to say real quick? Uh, Dallas, my fiance Dina, said uh, your Mother's Day Mimosa video was inspiring and that, and that we're going to do your tic-tac-toe game very soon. Yes, <laughs> yes. It is – oh, buddy, it is – it's a treat. You're going to find out just how athletic your significant other is if you get that tic-tac-toe. It's it's a, a beer pong, flip cup, tic-tac-toe execution. It's the trifecta, Tony. I, I, whoever came up with orange juice and champagne in the morning was brilliant. I mean, I talk about you want yeah you want to talk about spin zone that is the ultimate spin zone right here. What do you mean I can't have champagne? Yeah, it's not good for you before noon. Oh. Hold my beer. No, hold your own beer. I'll go get this 100% freshly squeezed OJ. Mm-hmm. Now who's winning? I am one nothing mimosa guy. Yeah, if 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 I pull out a little bullet bourbon at 9 a.m., people are going to think you got a problem. But if I do champagne and orange juice, hey, we're now all good with it. Daddy, you want to talk bourbon? You need to go get a bottle of Jefferson's, uh, Jefferson's by the sea. All right? This yep. is bourbon, Jefferson's by the sea. This is bourbon that is taken and casked and placed on a ship. And the ship obviously runs these routes, these shipping routes. Um, but the idea is the constant motion of the ocean. Mm-hmm. For all you folks out there who are seafaring individuals, the motion in the ocean allows and or it promotes and expedites the, uh, the casting process, the aging process, excuse me. So, it's it's just a different you know it's a it's a nuanced sort of uh, sort of way to go about bourbon. I think everybody knows I'm not afraid. <laughs> Get it in you, my friend. You deserve it. <laughs> Take care. We'll be in touch. All right, Uncle Tony. We'll see you guys. Dallas never disappoints. We caught up with Keith Falk, the former closer for the Oakland A's, and boy, his one year with the A's, he was fantastic. He's down in Arizona. What's the right-hander doing these days? Here's Keith Folt. Well, now joining us here on A's Cast Live, he's a World Series champion, an all-star, AL Rolaids Relief Man of the Year. He's led the AL in saves. Former athletic Keith Folk is with us here on A's Cast Live. How are you doing down there in the Valley of the Sun? Oh, the Valley of the Sun has treated me well. So it's, uh, you know, life is, life is, is as good as it could be during all this nonsense right now. Yeah, and hopefully we're going to get baseball going again. And like what uh, what we're seeing so far in South Korea, never thought I'd be watching the KBO, uh, especially with nobody in the stands. But I got to tell you, this brand of baseball in South Korea, I don't know if you've been able to watch it with all the bat flips and the umpires are dramatic with their – it's an entertaining game. <laughs> I have not seen it. Uh, I mean, I don't know how to watch it, but I think it would be kind of fun to watch. I've known a couple of guys that have played in Korea, and you know they said it's a uh, it's a different game over there. So yesterday it was either yesterday. I mean, it's Groundhog Day, whatever day it was. It was either yesterday yeah, or the day before. Exactly. They had Game Four on from the 2004 ALCS, and of course that's the you pitch in the game, and it's the famous stolen base by Dave Roberts. I mean, you guys are done. You're down 0-3. No one's ever come back from 0-3. And it's the curse of Bambino, and it's losing to the Yankees again as they stick the dagger in you. And all of a sudden, Dave Roberts steals that base, and you guys go into extra innings. You win that game, 
and the rest is history. What do you remember from that game, game four? Uh, it's kind of funny. I mean, the bag, you know, to go home for the winter was half packed. <laughs> you know, we painted ourselves into a pretty nasty picture and, um, you know, it's, it's even stressful to this day, rewatching it in the last few weeks, how close we were to really being done, you know, against the greatest reliever of all time, you know, to boot. So uh, it was stressful and it's, it's still stressful to this day when I go back and rewatch it. Yeah. And to think like, like, when did you start to believe like, okay, we win game four, then you win game five. Like, when did you start to believe, you know, we might be able to do this. You know, and after game three, you know, you come in and your head's down, your tail's tucked, and, you know, everybody's kind of sitting around the locker room, and it's like, man, I mean, what just happened? You know, and we got stomped in that, that game three. Then uh, it kind of got to the point where two things were going to happen come the next day. You know, it's uh, you win and you play another day. You lose, you pack your stuff, you go home, and you start your winter, and you try and get over it. So it, it really, at that point, kind of took the pressure off of us. And uh, we came out of game four like, you know what, what, what are we going to lose? It's been 86 years. What's the difference between 86 and 87? You know, so we just uh, started playing a lot looser. Uh, we were very fortunate in that series. We got all the breaks that we needed to get. And, uh, you know, we just went out there and, and literally played, you know, one game at a time. And the starting pitching you guys had, I mean, when you're throwing guys like Pedro, I think Kurt Schilling's finally going to get in the hall of fame. I think he should be in the hall of fame. He's, he's one, he's got over 200 wins and he's one of the greatest big game pitchers. He's one of the greatest postseason pitchers. But when you got starting pitching like that, 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 that's got to give you a lot of confidence. Yeah. I mean, the fact that we were down, you know, Oh three was kind of hard to believe in the first place, but, yeah, we had some guys that have been through the, uh, you know, been through the ringer a few times. And so I think that was another thing that helped us out is we had a really veteran ball club. And so guys have been in the playoffs before and, and have lost in the playoffs. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that there's, you know, there's a lot to be learned from, from losing, especially when it comes to, you know, any type of playoffs in any sport, really, that we didn't panic. You know, it's like all of a sudden it's, you know, it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, how are we going to do this? We knew how we could do it. We just had to get everybody to kind of relax, do their job, and, you know, throwing, you know, Pedro and, and Schilling and Derek Lowe and throwing those guys at them. It's like, you know, we got what we need. We just got to do it. You know, 2003 was a great year for you at the A's. I mean, your numbers are just – it's incredible. You were 9-1. You led the league in saves with 43. You pitched in 72 games – with a 2.08 ERA in the American League. Go back, it was the one year you were an All-Star. You even got MVP votes, let alone Cy Young votes. What was 03 like for you in your career? Uh, 03 was fun. You know, I, I had a great time playing in Oakland. Uh, it was just an easy place to play. You know, I, you had the, the great group of fans, and it was a fun place to play, and I, I enjoyed it. The, the ball club, we had a great ball club, and, that's one of the big disappointments in my life is that we actually we weren't able to do something that year, a little little greater. But uh, you know, I mean, I, I loved my time there, and I you know, I wanted to come back, but you know, things didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> we know how that works, but uh, yeah. you, you know, when I when, when I think you said the fans, you know, we don't have the biggest fan base, but it's amazing how fiercely loyal the A's fans are. I mean, they love the A's. And it's it's just that time that you got you guys had so much talent on those teams too. Yeah, and you know that's where um, you know how it ended in '03 was such a you know a, such a gut punch. Uh, but yeah, I mean that team was. I mean there were some great players on that team. I mean you had MVPs and batting champions and and, and Gold Glovers and Cy Young guys. I mean we had every piece of the puzzle filled in we just got just at the end was just still like i said it's still a little bitter taste in my mouth yeah that was a that 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 was tough boston obviously was a good team but i you really felt like the a's with with the disappointment in the playoffs from years before that this was going to be the time that they would break through absolutely you know it's one of those things where 
you know, we put, we had them exactly where we wanted, you know, it's like we were up 2-0, you know, and it's like, I know personally I came out and after we had to fly to Boston, man, my back locked up on me from, from an injury that I'd been dealing with. And it was just like, God, just, we just kept stepping on our own toes and we just couldn't get out of our own way and we couldn't get it done. And that was, like I said, it was, it was disappointing. You know, there's only been so many closers who had just a great changeup. I think of you, I think of Trevor Hoffman, you know, most guys, it's either their out pitch is either the blazing fastball, it's a wicked slider, or it's a split finger. But talk about the circle change, which is such a great pitch, because you're throwing it, it looks like everything looks the exact same as the fastball, the only difference is, is the change in the grip. Yeah, you know, that was one of those things that I developed at a very young age in my in my career is uh, is the, the changeup is, you know, fastball, well-located fastball is, is the best pitch in baseball. And so then what plays best off of that is something that looks like a fastball, but it's not there. You know, hitters can see the up and down. They can see the in and out. But, you know, I had some pretty great hitters, you know, Frank Thomas and, uh, you know, Albert Bell and guys like those early in my career told me the hardest thing for them to see is the front to back, the deception of, you know, of the depth. And so that's where I just developed it. You know, it was fastball changeup was primarily my, you know, my go-to, but I had great control and, you know, I could pick apart the zone and keep hitters off balance. You know, you first came up as a starter. I mean, you started for the Giants. When was it when you said, ah, I'm better out of the bullpen? And then, of course, you become a closer. It really, in 2000 is when you have your first big year, 34 saves. When was that transition in your career from starter to being in the bullpen to being a closer? Uh, well, I didn't make the decision. I always wanted to be a starter. But after I got traded from uh, from the Giants to the White Sox in 97, the White Sox were in the middle of their rebuilding. That was the white flag trade, all that stuff. So they had brought up a bunch of their young starters to the big leagues. So they're like, right now we're just gonna we don't have room for you in the rotation. We're gonna put you in the bullpen, and uh, you know. So I went out there, and uh, 97, 98 uh, went along, and and then all of a sudden it was like, you know, we had kind of talked about it a little bit, and then the management told me, hey, basically you you screwed up. You pitched well out of the bullpen. We can't afford to put you back into the rotation, and it's one of those things. I, I just never left the bullpen again. <laughs> yeah, it's always like. I want to be a, I'm a start, damn it. I'm a starter. And then all of a sudden uh, you're an all-star closer, but it's always that mentality, right? Where you're like, I can, I, I can start. I should be getting that ball every fifth day. Yeah. You know, cause that's one thing I love the minor leagues is I love going out there and grinding it out for, you know, six, seven, eight, nine innings. And, uh, you know, that's, that, that's what I wanted to do. But, you know, the bit the bull, the benefit of the bullpen is being able to pitch more. You know, going out there and pitching three, four times a week was something that I took a lot of pride in. And being able to go multiple innings out of the bullpen was something I always specialized in also. So what are you doing now? Uh, now, well, now, now, or during regular life? <laughs> during regular, regular now. Yeah. So now I am a uh, bullpen advisor for the for the Red Sox and the player development and so the minor leagues. So I... I work with the young minor league pitchers, the bullpen guys, and just help them um, try to mold them into being, you know, ready for the big leagues when the when the call comes, and uh, you know, producing uh, hopefully producing great, you know, relief pitchers down the road for the future. You know, it, recently watching the Game Seven of the 2001 World Series, the famous World Series between the Yankees and the Arizona Diamondbacks, and it's Game Seven. It's Roger Clemens, it's Kurt Schilling, and both those guys, you know, they threw hard. But now looking back, they're throwing 95-96. How did we get to a point in baseball where all we got all these guys throwing 100, 101? Like, how did this happen? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. But we've come across the, the generation where these, I call, I call them kids, but they've grown up wanting to throw hard. They grew up in, a, in an era of the radar gun. I never saw a radar gun until I got to my freshman year of college, and then I was dumbfounded by how slow I actually threw. 
But so these kids nowadays, they've grown up with, with personal pitching coaches and radar guns and, uh, you know, the technology that we put on TV that, you know, that fans watch a game is a lot greater. So, you know, it, it, it's sexy. You know, home runs and, you know, and 100-mile-hour fastballs are sexy. So that's what everybody wants. And when you're when you're when you're working with these kids, are you just amazed at the the velocity that you're seeing, like down at spring training? Across the board, it really is, and it takes a little while to get used to. You know, you see you see a lot of guys who have to work hard to throw hard, and then you get that uh, every once in a while you come across that guy. It's like he's throwing. It looks like he's going about fifty percent, and all of a sudden you just you hear the ball snap out of his hands, and you see the carry to the glove. You're like, oh wow, that's hard, you know, and then we start getting into games. It's like, oh, yeah, this guy popped out at 102 today. He was uh, 98 to a, to 100, you know, the whole day, and it's like, wow. You know, they're the athletes, they're, they train differently now. They're, they're just incredible athletes across the board, and I think that's how, you know, they get to throw harder. And, and, and we, we can end on this. The craziness is, these young hitters are now used to it, and they can hit it. Oh, they'll turn three digits around like it's nobody's business. So that's one thing. You know, it, it goes back to where, yes, you can throw harder. You can try and make breaking balls nastier. But it still comes down to my opinion. You still have to make these pitches in the proper locations and be able to set hitters up. Because if they're looking for a fastball and you're throwing 105, they're going to hit it. So you have to do something to make them uncomfortable and, and you know, keep them off balance still. Keith, it's great to catch up with you again and having you on the program. We appreciate it. Be well and be safe down there in the Valley of the Sun. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to talk to you once again once we get baseball going. Hey, that sounds like a plan. How are many times? Good to hear from him. I haven't talked to him in years. And then a guy that's always been a fan favorite, and he's been one of my favorites as I've gotten to know him over the years because he's such good people. And it's so great to have him back in the organization. Here is. Adam Rosales. Well, our next guest here on A's Cast Live is one of my all-time favorite A's, not only for the style of play and how hard he played for the fans, but just also one of the really good guys we've had in this organization multiple times playing for the Oakland A's. And now he's back as a coach for the A's. Adam Rosales is with us. Rosie, how are you down in the Valley of the Sun? <laughs> I'm burning up down here, but it's nice, nice. You know, I, I haven't talked about this a lot, but I and, and nobody really cares. But I, I twice I've thrown out the first pitch. The first time I did it, I did it to you, and it was so much fun. And, and it's it's a, an experience that I'll never forget. I had my kids there. It was a wonderful time. Yeah, that was what 2010, probably back in. Well, the first show was with the A's, right? 2010. Yeah, it, it was. It, it was your first go around, and. Uh, isn't it crazy how time is just flown by? Is you know we're we're looking at Dallas Braden, the ten year anniversary of his perfect game is 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 today. Isn't that crazy? That is wild. I can't believe how fast that goes by. But you know what? Whenever I'm asked, because that's like the number one question people ask me, besides my home run trot, of course. But it's yeah. what's your favorite? What's your favorite memory of playing this game? And immediately, without hesitation, it's May 9th, 2010, Dallas Braden playing second base behind him. That's my favorite memory of all time playing this playing baseball. At what point are you in the field? You're going, oh, my God, he's got a perfect game. Because you, you don't want to be the guy that screws it up. Right. You know, I try not even let the thought come into my brain. That's how superstitious I was. Um, but yeah, probably around the seventh, eighth inning, like, oh my goodness, you, you're looking at the scoreboard and you can see how focused and how bad he wants it. And you just, man, he might, he might do this. And then, you know, it comes down to that last pitch when I think it was Gabe Kapler that hit it at Cliff Pennington in short. But, I, I was so nervous. And I, 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 I'm up in the press box, for God's sakes. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my. And, and when Kapler hit that ball to, to Cliff Payne, I just went, oh, my God, Cliff, don't screw it up. Please, God, don't screw it up. And, of course, uh, Cliff made the play. And it was so special because we know how Dallas lost his mother 
His grandmother was there. It was Mother's Day. Like you couldn't, you couldn't write a better script. No, you couldn't. I mean, that was phenomenal. Just to, and just to be a part of that was unreal. Um, yeah, but you just felt for Dallas that day. Just the emotions that were going on in the stadium at the Coliseum was, you know, completely memorable. And when you think about the Rays at that time, that was a pretty good lineup that 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 he did that against. Oh my goodness, for sure. And but if I remember correctly, that was a great lineup. But didn't they get no hit or another perfect game the same or the year afterwards might have been. I forgot, yeah, it was, but it, it, it was, was right always... around the same time. But yeah, but to think of all the they had some they had some all star players, and to think that anybody could know hit a lineup like that is just you you, you got to be deep on that day. You have to be on point against a lineup like that. There's no question. You know the thing about Dallas that I always remember is just how great his changeup was, and how I mean you mm-hmm. would have stopped playing behind him, but how he could just throw that changeup at any time, any count. Yeah, and that's probably the toughest – that was always the toughest pitch for, for me to hit and to me to recognize as a changeup. And just to see that thing work for Dallas was – like it's fun to play behind guys like that. They kind of make guys look foolish at the plate. You're like, dang, I'm, well, I'm not up there facing Dallas right now. You know, but he, well, it was nasty, no question. And as an infielder, you, you like that a guy can pitch to contact. You like that a guy works fast because, you know, so many guys now today – I mean, so many guys are so slow, and every single pitch, it's max velocity. And there's just uh, – Adam, there's just a whole lot of standing around in today's baseball. Yeah, it is. Obviously, pace of game is always uh, something to consider. But, I mean, guys like Dallas – but I remember facing a Mark Burley and me having to step out of the box just to slow him down because I swear every game he threw was under two hours for sure. But, yeah, the <laughs> – the the pace of game is definitely uh, is you know some some yeah you're right some guys standing around that's why they got the pitch clock on us now right for for pitchers and make sure you get back in the batter's box or you get a strike I think that's just in the minor leagues right now though right I'm not sure if that's the, the, the big the, leagues the, the, the the clock is running but nothing's being enforced and and yeah there's no enforcement right yeah hopefully and I think this is kind of what we've seen that when these guys get used to it in the minor leagues. At some point, you know, like Lou Trevino said, I'm used to it. I had it in the minor leagues. At some point when the older players start to retire, I think that's when you can implement it because everybody would have done it in the minor leagues. Right, yeah, they're, they're familiar with it. There's no, That's a great point. Are, have you been watching the Korean Baseball League? I haven't. I know I mentioned two. Just, uh, no, I mean, uh, it's great to see, though. I saw the headlines, you know, or the – I saw it was starting. I know uh, Jared Hoyings over there. I played with him in Texas, and it was really neat to to see some kind of baseball get back into action. You know, yeah, and 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 really, it's the roadmap for how we get back into it. And but I'm telling you, you got to watch it because these guys, they've got swagger like you wouldn't believe. They're bat. It's the biggest bat flips you've ever seen. And trust me. <laughs> They're not running. They're not running the bases on a home run like you. They're pimping it. Oh man, that's a different. It's a different ball game, right? I don't know. I could never do it. I would be uh, different over there, to say the least. Okay, 10 p.m. on ESPN or ESPN two. You got to flip it on and watch these guys because even like the pitchers. So Dan Straley, you know Dan Straley. Dan yeah, Straley. yeah. Uh huh. So we're hopefully going to get him on, but he told Eno Saris of The Athletic that the teams have encouraged him to get excited after strikeouts. So they want everybody to be entertained. Ah, uh, gotcha. So it's more like the entertainment factor. And that's – I mean, the game's changing, right? Like, I don't know. We, we, we've been talking a lot about, like, respecting the game in a sense. But, I mean, I think that's what people – want to see though in a sense you know a lot of fans enjoy that but it's like uh, for me personally uh, it would it'd be tough for me to do because I, I wouldn't you know you just hit a homer off the pitcher you kind of want to show that respect still but if that's what the Korean like the Korean baseball does and it's for the entertainment I guess that, that plays right 
Well, hey, it, it would be funny. Let's let's see you do one bat flip and see how it is. It would be interesting to see. <laughs> and then to watch you spin around the bases after a bat flip would be hot. I might get drilled. For, I would get drilled for sure. I'd be wearing one right in the ribs. <laughs> You're getting drilled for hustling. Oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> tell, 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 uh, the, tell the story again how you adopted that hitting the home run and spreading around the bases because fans love it. Oh my gosh. You know, that's obviously that's the number one question, but uh, first home run ever tells was left-handed at a ballpark in Chicago. It was called Fillins. We all wanted to play at Fillins and just, it barely got over the fence, hit it left-handed. I probably had my eyes closed when I did it, went over the fence and I was thinking around at first. I'm like, this is, I'm running slow. And what happens if that ball hit the top of the fence is what my thought process was. And then from there on, I'm like, you know what? I don't want to be embarrassed. So from now on, every time I come out of the box, I'm going to hit it like I'm hitting a triple. So I started doing it when I was like 12 or 14 years old. But then it, kept, it became like a trademark because I went to high school and I went to college. And then I'm like, you know what? If I ever get to play in the major leagues, I'm going to play like I played when I was 12 years old. So it's kind of like a – it became like a tribute to my 12-year-old self of playing the game the right way, at least the game that I knew how to play the right way. Yeah, and, but, and not, not only do fans love it, scouts love it, and that was one thing they always loved about Pete Rose and why they called him Charlie Hustle. You played in Cincinnati. I mean, Pete Rose, yeah. when he when he walked, he ran down to first base. He didn't jog. <laughs> I know in Cincinnati they called me Pete Rosales. Pretty funny. <laughs> Because <laughs> I was always running with, <laughs> I was always running with my hair on fire because it so much energy. I did not yeah. know that. That is hilarious. <laughs> that was fun. They had a good time with it. Yeah. So, That's so you, you you you've gotten into coaching. How much fun are you having with these young kids? Oh man, it's the best. You know, because it's tough. It's a really tough game, more mentally than physically for me. But just like building the relationships with them, being in the cage and listening to them. I, I don't. I work with some young kids, you know, in the off season. I started doing like camps and whatnot. And to them, you're like talking and talking and talking. They're probably like shut up. But then you get into the cage with a professional ball player, and you just listen to them and you watch their body language. And they talk, they talk to you. You wait for them to talk to you. And then you kind of just um, say what they said to you. And you just, uh, it, it's just the, the relationship, that trust that you build with them. Uh, how they kind of coach themselves is pretty remarkable, man. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to really getting to the, the grind with them. You know, it's going to be, I, I know it's going to be grindy for sure, but I, I really look forward to that and helping them. And just being there for them and putting the time in for them, watching, studying their videos and getting to know them as, as players and as human beings, you know, like on and off the field. So there's a green team and there's a gold team. And uh, do you say Kevin Kuzminoff is with the gold? <laughs> so, yeah, he's the hitting coach for the gold team. Yeah, it's going to be pretty, it's going to be neat to see because there's two teams in the AZL and you play against each other, I guess. I'm still new to all this. But I guess you play against each other, and uh, yeah, it's it's fun too. In spring training, I got to see Kuz work as a coach, and listening to him and the things I'm learning about him and what he's saying. You know, like I wish as a player I would have picked his brain more or other players' brains more to to enhance my game. But now that you're kind of outside the game, you kind of you kind of see it from the sidelines, and it's it's more of a you get to see the whole picture kind of as a coach. What was it like for you to be offered the gig and come back to the A's family? You know, unbelievable. I'm not sure what I can say, what I can say, like what. But you know, I, I interviewed with a few teams here in Arizona because obviously my family is here, and it's it's really nice to be. You know, I'll be right here, get to spend time with Callie and the kids a lot more. Obviously, I haven't done, I haven't been home really. Like I've always been traveling since I've been. 12 years old basically i've been, been away from home so it's really nice to be here with, with my wife and kids but i interviewed with like four or five different teams and i you know i wasn't sure if i was going to get the the role or the job but uh, i talked to lip 
and Lips like we would love to have you on, and just welcomed me with open arms. I'm like, holy smokes! Like I just, it was just a ton of respect, man. And just like, uh, I've always felt that respect from the Oakland A's, and uh, and I've always, I've always had the respect for this organization. And I, I just love being it. I love wearing the green and gold and being a part of this organization. Well, it's great to have you back. And let's end on this. Uh, a funny note, um, Dallas Braden admitted about the perfect game. Uh, finally, 10 years later, he, he admitted that he was hung over going into the start. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, oh, my gosh. I would, uh, that's pretty impressive. I, could, I couldn't imagine playing baseball in a different state of mind, but I guess that really uh, benefited him, obviously, as a playing, pitching a perfect game. Good for him. And what's crazy is we had him on recently, and I asked him because they were they were they were, they were airing the game on NBC Sports California. I said, "Have you ever watched it?" And he said, "No, he's never watched his own perfect game." Oh, wow, that's amazing. I I would think that he would watch that the next night, maybe not the next night, but at least a couple years later. You know, like kind of like to reflect on it. Um. That's really interesting that he's never watched that. But I'm actually going to have – I actually do a webinar right now for the youth, for youth baseball, and I'm actually having Dallas on next next week uh, because obviously I know it's the, the, the anniversary. It's, the, it's been a decade since he's thrown the perfect game, but I thought because Kuz is on the webinar with us, I thought it would be kind of cool to have us just kind of reminisce about it. Um, and he was so it was really willing to hop on the webinar, and I think a lot of young kids will uh, might be shocked, <laughs> you know, because obviously Dallas is a character. I'm not sure how it's going to go, but it's going to be fun. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I and I really appreciate him taking the time to do it. And I, I just look forward. I always look forward to talking to Dallas. His energy and uh, just the kind of person he is. Uh, it's, it's always a treat, you know. You know, like I said earlier, you're, you're one of my favorite A's that I ever covered. You were always so great to us, and it's great to have you back in the A's family. Be well, be safe, and hopefully you guys will get to, uh, to get to playing baseball pretty soon here. All right, Townsie. Thanks for having me on, man. Great to hear from you. That was a lot of fun to do. We want to thank Mike Epstein, Dallas Braden, Keith Falk, and Adam Rosales. Now back to A's cast powered by TuneIn. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. 